is Brandon Lewis of Embedded Computing Design, and I'm here with Rich Nass for this week's version of the Embedded Insiders. How are you doing, Rich? I'm doing pretty good. Back from Vegas, where uh, I can very honestly say I did not lose any money. I didn't win any money, but I didn't lose any money. Neither did I. No gambling this trip. Don't tell my wife. She always tells me, put 20 on black, and I always tell her we lost. But this time, I didn't even put the 20 on black. So... <laughs> Um, Anyway, yeah, we're back from from Vegas uh, for CES, which was, to me, not as hectic as usual, but that's relative. I mean, it's always uh, a massive show. It's a monstrosity. We're walking around in the oddly cold desert um, for an entire week in January. Um, Did you see anything cool cool there this year, Rich, that stands out? Before I get into that, um, one of the things you just referenced about it not being as hectic, I actually had a few people say to me that uh, attendance was down because the Asian contingent did not come in the masses that they usually do because of the, you know, what's happening in China with their economy. Um, did you sense that as well? Yeah, actually I did. Now, every year, you know, it's, it's, it's strange because every year I get a little bit better uh, organizing my time at CES. You know, I only spend certain days in certain areas, and I thought, you know, on one hand, yeah, it does seem that the traffic's a little bit lighter, but on the other hand, I was just giving myself kudos for doing such a great logistics job. Um, but, yeah, I, I really didn't see as many um, of the vendors that we typically do, um, and that's, and that, you know, Renaissance, for example, um, didn't have as much of a presence this year as they have in years past. To speaking with some of the representatives, they were really focusing on more on, you know, having meetings with customers and not doing the big, you know, blowout uh, demonstrations that were open to the public. Um, And then just walking around South Hall, some of the um, companies that are traditionally there selling, you know, lower-end widgets and gizmos uh, I didn't encounter. So, uh, yeah, that's probably, that may have been a big contributing factor. Okay. Yep. I would would agree as well. Uh, Okay. So what did you see that really caught your attention? Um, Well, let's start off... uh, really quickly with um, Amazon, Alexa, and just voice services in general. Um, The voice services market is blowing up, and the leader at this point has to be Amazon. And one of the reasons, I think, for that is that Amazon's done a really good job partnering with a lot of embedded uh, semiconductor guys. I know that NXP, Microchip, just to name a couple, um, are running with this um, Alexa voice integration services um, and putting it into a lot of different development kits, um, enabling it on some of their platforms so that it can be in different form factors, so that it can, uh, you know, we can drive the cost down so you don't have to pay a couple hundred bucks for an Echo. Maybe, um, you know, there are some smaller Echo Dot type solutions. And then, obviously, moving forward, we're talking about implementing it into your everyday devices like your you know, fridge and your TV. So that's, that was one big thing. Um, how about you? Uh I totally agree with what you said, and, uh, and I know there were two different camps on that. They, the OEMs are pretty excited about it because it gives them another feature to add to their products. Um, but on the device side, people are a little concerned because it makes it hard to differentiate. If you're somebody who, who offers a, a slight enhancement to voice recognition, um, it's a problem because it's becoming so ubiquitous and people are getting pretty accustomed to what's good enough is actually pretty good. Um, so there was, there was definitely some concern there, both on the guys who write the algorithms and the people who do the ICs to enhance this technology. Yeah, 
definitely, that's going to be an interesting market to uh, to watch. Obviously, Amazon just cares about spreading out uh, voice rec as far as it possibly can, uh, wherever the eye can see, so that it can sell more stuff, get more data up into its cloud. So we'll see how it shakes out. Hopefully, some of the algorithm guys continue their uh, innovations there. Yep. So one of the cooler demos that I saw had to do with uh, artificial intelligence um, from MediaTek. Um, it, it was definitely not ready for prime time, but, it's, but it seemed like it was pretty close. There were two different things. One was where they were showing a television um, with machine learning where the TV actually learned different features, like different things that are on the screen and knew how to enhance them properly. I'm probably not describing it very well, but for example, if there was a tree, it knew right away how to shade the tree. And what they were doing is they were showing things, they had it rigged so it was seeing things for the first time. So you'd see it the first time, and then when, it, when another tree came back around, it was very different from that last tree. And also like a close-up on a person, how, a, how skin should be portrayed. And they had a side-by-side -side demo with a TV that did not have this technology, which was, which was pretty good. And then you saw the one with the machine learning enhanced picture. And it was pretty uh, eye-opening to see the difference in it. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It sounds sort of like um, I've been hearing a lot of the uh, chipset and processor guys at this point, actually a lot of the IP vendors, working on image sig signal processing. And what happens in the pipeline is that they can um, apply some neural network capabilities, you know, either during or right before uh, encode or decode uh, to add color to certain areas to get rid of some of the washed out um, things that might happen because, you know, an image was too light or too dark. So get ready for... Uh, Better pictures, maybe even on that huge 275-inch Samsung TV that was there. Yes, the Samsung TV, I won't even go into because it, it, was, <laughs> it, it just blew me away. But the other MediaTek demo that I saw was where, and you have to tell me if, if this is something new or if, if it's only new to me. They had um, a lady in front of a blue screen, and um, without, in, without wearing any electrodes or anything, there's, there's a camera on her, and as she moved, the robot next to her would mimic her movements. Um, that was really, really cool. Have you ever seen that? No, I've never seen that. I hope you took a picture because I'm looking forward to seeing what you're talking about right after we get off. Yep. I will, uh, I'll, I'll see if I can post that as part of this, uh, as, as part of this podcast. What else? Well, uh, one last thing on AI, and I'm, I'm actually posting something about this today uh, that's interesting, especially if you're a Western uh, co company, if you work in the air quotes West. It appears to me through a lot of different demonstrations and uh, booths that I walk through that the West is sort of falling behind in artificial intelligence, and there are a couple of reasons why. Um, I've talked to companies like AI Motive, and then a, and they're based out of uh, Eastern Europe, and then another company called MiniEye um, out of the Far East. And both of them deal with automotive uh, technologies, and the reason that they are so far ahead is that they're actually using artificial intelligence to train artificial intelligence. Now, in the West, in you know, our common thinking, we wouldn't use artificial intelligence to train artificial intelligence, in, especially in safety-critical applications like automotive. But a lot of these other companies are, are doing it, and it enables them to get leaps and bounds ahead of where we are today. Because one of the 
issues with training is that you have to label all of the features and it's a very manual process. It takes forever and the training is really initially um, what takes up so much resources, so much time and requires a lot of expertise. By cutting you know, the human factor out, you may actually improve the accuracy um, eventually, um, but you also get rid of a lot of the time that it takes to do that. So something for everybody to think about if you're working on artificial intelligence, you know, how you're going to be able to get your algorithms uh, tuned and up and running, but most importantly, out into the market quickly, because as everybody knows, once you start getting entrenched into a market, especially industrial automotive, where the design cycles are really long, um, you're, you've got a big leg up on everybody else. Interesting stuff. What about on the security front? Did you see anything there? Yeah, actually, I met with uh, Lewis Parks of uh, SecureRF, and we talked about something that's emerging um, in the security world, uh, still on the horizon, but it's quantum security, and uh, take a listen here. Okay, Brandon Lewis here of Embedded Computing Design. We're at CES 2019, and I'm sitting here with uh, Lewis Parks, who's CEO of SecureRF. How are you doing? Good, Brandon. Good to be here. Good. So um, we want to talk a little bit about quantum computing, quantum security, and the impact that's going to have um, on industry moving forward. We know that security is always an arms race. Uh, but before we get there, let's start off with uh, just a brief reminder of SecureRF, what you offer, um, and, and, you know, Sure. Thank you, Brandon. So just very, very briefly, um, my partners, uh, who are mathematician cryptographers, have been developing public key or asymmetric methods specifically designed to address very, very small or low-resource computing platforms. And when I say small, I'm talking about 8- and 16-bit processors and low-end 32-bit processors, like ARM's new M23 and 33 uh, processors. Uh, specifically, when I say address them, we're creating very, very small code footprints, um, very, very low energy consumption, particularly to address battery or low energy, low resource processors today, and very, very fast compute times to make sure that they're commercially viable. So, um, you mentioned, obviously, resource-constrained devices in the Internet of Things, that's uh, most most of the devices, at least the largest amount of them. Uh, so today with encryption, some of the security technologies that we're using, how are they holding up? What are some of the challenges, some of the setbacks, and, and maybe some of the advantages and improvements that we've seen? So generally speaking, all security is, is good to go. And of course, we have both encryption decryption security, which people often think of as security. But a lot of what we do is device to device and authentication identification. The issue there is that the current public key methods, which are very good, RSA and ECC, are typically too large and too cumbersome to use on these small devices. So again, a smartphone, a tablet, your laptop, all IoT devices, secure, good to go, etc. It's really when you get to the lower resource devices that it becomes harder and harder to do the device to device authentication in either times or performance characteristics that are realistic for commercial development. Great. So that's where SecureRF comes in, uh, but we want to talk a little bit about quantum, the world of quantum, and um, anybody who's familiar with physics um, should be aware of quantum um, and what that means in the computing world. Can you explain a little bit about the impact that that's going to have potentially on security? Sure. So quantum computing, which has uh, been an idea for probably 30 plus years, became reality a few years ago when MIT and IBM both successfully built very elementary quantum computers, but it proved the physics. 
so that's begun the foot race or the arms race, depending upon how you look upon it, uh, to build the, the larger, more significant quantum computers. Uh, what a lot of people, when we talk about it, these, these are not platforms that are going to replace conventional computing. They're going to coexist with conventional computers. But we are interested in it because there are at least two known algorithms already that when they can run on a sufficiently large quantum computer will impact the security that we use on conventional computers. And that's what we're concerned about, is that the conventional computing environment will be impacted by these two algorithms. And so the real issue or the real debate you can have, and, and many people in your audience will know better than me or have uh, more educated guests as to when that will be, uh, some people will tell you it's five years away for the first uh, break. Other people will tell you it's 10, 12, or 15 years or more away. Um, but it's happening. So we're concerned, and that's why NIST, uh, Etsy, other standards bodies are now looking at it. Uh, everybody is saying, let's be aware. And in particularly in the commercial sector, people who are building devices that are entering the market, uh, even now, think about automobiles that have a three-year design cycle, seven-year build cycle, seven-year post-build support, already need to be concerned because they're entering the envelope of when quantum computers could impact them with these algorithms on conventional computing. Very good. So um, you mentioned the commercial world. When you go out and talk to potential clients, customers, um, are they aware of quantum computing and, and the impact it could have on security at this point, or is it still sort of floating out in the ether, uh, you know, hypothetical? So it's interesting. So many people are aware, and frankly, the um, let's call it the reception is a function of the marketplaces that they're operating in. So for a lot of uh, consumer platforms. Uh, even if they are aware, um, there may just be uh, good to know, we'll get back to you because they'll probably go through one or two design cycles before these products emerge on the horizon. Right. Uh, other platforms already have it as a checkbox for uh, moving forward with a product design because they know, uh, for example, infrastructure smart grid, many of those devices go into the marketplace for decades. Right. So the decisions being made today need to take into account what may be or when it will be. Uh, those people are more aware. And we also see a little bit of a variation in response to these developments, um, at least we have in our meetings between entities in North America, for example, and the EU. So in the EU, they're very aware, uh, but at the same time, it's uh, very good, let's get back to what we need to do today. Um, and again, for a lot of the software-based software solutions, uh, they'll have the ability to roll over or address those things in, excuse me, the next two or three generations uh, of, of those products or platforms. Um, so it really varies, but there is a general awareness, um, and again, sensitivity based on who the entity is we're talking to and the nature of the product they're developing. Very good. So uh, I'm aware through conversations with you uh, that SecureRF does have some solutions that um, offset or at least address some of the quantum computing and quantum security challenges that we've been talking about. Can you go into those a little bit? Sure. So just for background, and a lot of your listeners would know, there's really two algorithms that we are referencing when we talk about quantum resistance today. It's Grover's and it's Shores. Grover affects everybody uh, and basically uh, cuts the used security in half, so 
we'll need to all go to 256-bit level security to get to achieve 128-bit security when Grover can run. Shor's algorithm is really the more menacing or troubling one because that's the one that specifically uh, breaks ECC, elliptic curve, properly used today, and RSA. Um, so, and it breaks it because of the characteristics of the math used by each. That is, um, you have math that's cyclic, uh, abelian. Um, so, really, what is happening now are there are a variety of methods that are quantum resistant, our method being one of them. Um, that are now being studied. So you have lattice-based methods, multivariate, etc. Uh, a lot of them studied for a longer period of time. Our methods have been around 40, 45 years, group theoretic methods, uh, although typically categorized as other. Um, but there's a difference, and a lot of the methods that have been uh, viewed or more studied tend to be significantly larger, uh, both in terms of the code size as well as the keys. So where we talk about 128-bit keys for things like AES today, some of these new uh, quantum-resistant methods have you know, megabyte-sized keys. So they are not going to address the small, low-resource devices that are entering the IoT. Very, very specifically, um, our methods are quantum-resistant because uh, they do not rely on finite math, cyclic, or abelian commutative math. Uh, as do the other methods, but our footprint is particularly small, our key size is smaller, our compute size is very, very fast. So we address a very specific end of processors or IoT uh, that the other four or five, arguably five methods, do not today. Very good. So um, with the arms race, as uh, quantum becomes more of a reality, is that going to mean that the security measures are going to have to increase in size? for these uh, resource constrained devices or because of the way that you guys are implementing your security solutions and the type of math that you're using, are you able to keep it down in that resource constrained uh, 8, 16, low and 32-bit uh, area? So again, Shor's method is not a function of, you know, let's use really, really big keys. It is going to break uh, ECC and RSA. Uh, so there is no key size that addresses that. Again, other methods um, will be immune to his attack, uh, so they will be quantum resistant. Our methods, as they're currently implemented today, are quantum resistant, and these are methods with very, very small code sizes. So we're implementing in uh, 3 to 5K of ROM in software, and a K of RAM, maybe, a little over a K of RAM. Uh, we do smaller implementations in that, as well as, uh, depending on the platform, because it could be um, on an FPGA where we go into fabric, uh, it could be in silicon, it could be in software. So we have solutions running today uh, in what I consider commercially viable performance, um, you know, 100 millisecond-ish range on an 8-bit 8051 processor. Okay, wow. So that's probably about as small as you're going to get, and, and those are quantum resistant today. Very good. Uh, so, Lewis, thanks for your time. Where can people go to find out more information? Uh, they're welcome to go to our website, securerf.com. There's white papers. There's free SDKs. We have uh, uh, platforms and solutions that people can try and on their own, uh, depending on their tool sets, um, or give us a call. So, yeah, that was Lewis Sparks. Uh and his thoughts on quantum security. And I've heard that certain uh, organizations, MIT, 
being one, um, have already started um, working with a very rudimentary quantum computer. So nobody lose their mind yet, but you need to start thinking about these things, especially in systems that are going to be deployed for a long time and might end up having an industrial control system that's 15 years old and completely exposed. So to be clear, you'll let us know when it's okay to lose our mind? Yes, shortly after I lose mine. <laughs> Very good. Okay. <laughs> I think that's a wrap, Brandon. Sounds good. Well, uh, that was uh, Rich Nass, the Executive Vice President and Brand Director for Embedded and IoT at Embedded Computing Design and Open Systems Media. I'm Brandon Lewis, the Editor-in-Chief of Embedded Computing Design. Thanks, Rich.